This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Swings here and he drives one deep in the center. Puig is racing back, still going back. He looks up, it's gone! Over the center field wall for Hunter Pence. Pence will touch them all and score them all. A grand slam for Hunter Pence. It's not easy when it's tough. That's when you find out what you're made of. You get so much Brisby in your ears if you want it. If you want Brisby, oh gosh, you get it. Anybody want coffee? I'm making coffee. Anybody want? Yes! 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 I'm a frequent coffee drinker. I'm part of the club. I have a card. You're listening to The Baseball Barista with Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 12 of The Baseball Barista with Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70 celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Hunter, how you doing today? Grant, I'm doing excellent. So happy to be here for The Baseball Barista, sipping on my coffee. So many great things going on in this baseball season. Uh, this is a wild one. And uh, yeah, I'm just thrilled to be here talking baseball with you. Great things going on. You know, real quick, since I'm mentioning tops, did you collect baseball cards when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. Mainly for the bubble gum, though, back in the day. <laughs> and so when you're holding your very first baseball card, did you just stare at it for a while? Because I feel like I would just stare at it for an hour. Like, I remember just being happy to open up the packs and like, and like so pumped to get the bubble gum. That's like... <laughs> That's my memory of and, and like it was like the other thing was is like run down the foul balls and take them to the concession stand to get like a you could get a soda because we didn't have sodas you know at our house so I was always so like in a rush to get any foul ball. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Now I I, uh, I remember like when the rare occasion where my mom or dad would get me a box of baseball cards from like Costco or Price Club back then. That's when the gum really became an issue because now you're shoving you know twenty in your mouth at one time and uh, good memories. And crunchy gum. Uh, I don't know. I have a soft spot for crunchy gum. You get the big bubbles out of that stuff too. You know. I don't think I ever had twenty, but that sounds like a good time. What was your favorite card as a kid? Favorite card? You know, it was a uh, Ricky Henderson. It was a Granny Goose card. It was a card that had like a, a little scratch off contest. And you would scratch off the contest to see if you won. But if you didn't scratch it off, it was worth more, right? This is back when baseball cards had heightened value. And why it's my favorite is because I took it to Ricky Henderson to sign at a card show. And he said, you know what? Don't scratch this. Ricky's card is worth a lot more if you don't scratch this off. And it was like, oh, man, of course I'm not going to scratch it off, Ricky. So that makes it my favorite all-time baseball card. Dang, that's so cool. I used to love the batting gloves that he had that he ran with that had like the little, the Mizuno little pumps. Uh, those were so the sweet. The fluorescent green. The fluorescent green, but they had the little pads. I thought they were so cool. You know, whenever I'd get on first base, I had those gloves and I would go into the crouch and I run, you know, like a like a two-legged raccoon. I was not fast, but I had the gloves, so I had to pretend that I was fast. So good times, good times. You know what else is fun about Little League? That, like at least back then and in and, and our time, and we didn't have, you know, as much coverage as we do now. We didn't have YouTube and all of the cool games. But it was super fun to like imitate, like like you said, like the Ricky Henderson stance and, and the sprinting. 
but it was also super fun. Like we would do everyone's batting stance from like Julio Franco to like, I remember trying to be Bo Jackson and like the way you did Bo Jackson. I don't know if you remember this. Can you remember Bo Jackson's stance? Did you ever try to do it as a kid? Bo Jackson, I don't right. Julio Franco, absolutely. Bo Jackson, I don't. Not not off the top of my head. I mean, I can kind of picture it. So I just remember going to my, my Little League games. And this is when I'm like six or seven or something and just like completely straightening my front foot. So it's like this like barred out front foot leg because I it just felt like that's what Bo Jackson did. So I was like Bo Jackson at the plate. Anyway, just good memories. You you brought up good memories. So we can carry on to uh, to the stuff and things you want to talk about, Big Grant. See, sometimes the tangents are just the best part. But we're going to talk about, uh, I hope this is okay with you, baseball. Um, we're going to talk about some of the best players around baseball. We're going to talk about who is, I don't know if we're going to, frame it as like who's in the lead for the MVP because it is still June but let's just talk about the players having goofy seasons you know just just like if a player has caught your eye and you're like man this guy is doing some good stuff let's talk about it because it's it's a way to celebrate baseball you know all the news about baseball is kind of bleak you know if, if you're chasing down the hot takes and stuff like that so let's talk about the players who are doing good stuff anyone catch your eye well, I mean, obviously there's some tremendously wild things. And one of my – I have a couple of thoughts on that. I can't just answer it straight away. But I'm going to start with one of my favorite things to follow in all of baseball has always been the Triple Crown. The Triple Crown is just like such – just an absolute dominance. And, you know, I think Miguel Cabrera was the last one to win the Triple Crown in 2012, if I recall right. But Vladimir Guerrero leading the Triple Crown numbers – I know it's early – but, I mean, Vladdy Guerrero, he put on some great offensive program, workout program, offseason workout program. He's moving around, bouncing around, making good defensive plays. His speed right now, like, which is kind of crazy, is above league average. So he really put in that work, and now you're seeing the talent. He's only 22. You know, I think Vladimir Guerrero has to be, you know, at the top of the list of, like, players just doing absurd things. Anytime you're talking Triple Crown. You know, basically the age of a college senior. I mean, you, you forget how young Guerrero is because it's it feels like we've been waiting for him to become the baseball player he's become. At the same time, like it's the way he's doing it. It's not just he's bopping home runs. It's not just that he's hitting for a high average. It's like, how do you pitch to him? It, it, he is like the, the most dangerous batter in baseball almost because he has such command of the strike zone. He's he's able to make great contact and he's just doing damage on pitches anywhere in the strike zone. It's phenomenal. I think adding the patience to it is something you didn't expect from this young. Like you knew, like when you think of like Vladimir Guerrero, you think of the guy who can like hit a double off a ball bouncing. Like he's just got like crazy hand-eye coordination, his dad, and like swung at everything. And the fact that Vlad Jr., not only is he like power and crazy able to hit a lot of pitches and put up good at-bats, but like when you add patience and, and taking a walk to the mix, it just becomes this like unheard of, you know, hitter. I don't want to go into Barry Bonds just yet, but I mean, how many walks did Barry Bonds have? Like, so, you know, he has a long way to go. And if we're starting here at 22, chasing a triple crown, we have a lot of exciting things to look forward to. But the other thing that's that's crazy to me, not only is it like the power, the great hand-eye coordination, the not like low whiff percentage and like his barrel percentage, his hard hit percentage is like absurd. But then you're adding what I didn't expect when I was like, yeah, he's going to be like his dad. He's going to crush. He's going to hit. It's going to be exciting. But he's also fast and athletic. Like that to me is like the whole package. It's like, yeah, he's this offensive threat, but he's also making great defensive plays. He's getting down the line. That's extraordinarily exciting for me. It's funny because now that you're saying all this, it's making me think of a potential future where like 
30 years, we're talking about Pablo Sandoval Jr. having like great walk rates and like the discipline of Pablo Sandoval Jr. Because that's what it's like to talk about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. You're just used to Vladimir Guerrero meaning one thing, which is a very unique hitter. It's, it's athleticism. It's just like this raw, you know, statue, but fast with the arm of the gods. And, you know, he'll hit the ball that bounces on the plate and he'll hit it over the fence. Like that's what Vladimir Guerrero means in my mind. And to have like, Oh, no, now it means something a little bit different. It's a different kind of athleticism. It's a different kind of hitter. It's still just as unique. And like the statue body is a different kind of statue body. It's just like he's such a unique player. It's like impossible to have two players who are so unique with the same name. I don't know. It's, it's in, in very different ways. But I think it's also fun, you know, like that you're following like the son of someone, you know, a lot of people like you felt Vlad Sr., when he played, you felt his joy and his passion and his love for hitting. Like, you just think of baseball. There's pine tar over the helmet, pine tar all over the bat. You know, this dirty guy that's got this great rhythm and gives you just a heck of an at-bat and was involved in a lot of, you know, great runs and just baseball tradition. And you can tell, you can feel the love from the son as well. And it's a little bit different story. So it's like, it's fun because you feel like they're part of your family. You know, when you're in the baseball family and you're a fan, you follow it. Like, you just, you have great memories of Vladimir Guerrero. And like being in awe of how he hit. And now we're watching, you know, like the home run derby, even though Vlad Jr. lost it uh, a couple years back, that home run derby that he put up in 2019 where he hit like 20-some homers and he's just flicking them out at 21 years old or 20 years old, whatever he was. I think it might have been two years ago. It's incredible. It's a part of the story of baseball and the fabric of, of the fun. And, and he's got kind of just that – that smile, that playfulness, and that youthfulness, and it, and it's it's just a joy to watch right now. One reason I like talking about him is because years ago I wrote a series on where home runs look the best, and I looked at all 30 major league ballparks and like, where do home runs look the best? I mean, a home run's a home run that goes over the fence, but a home run that sails over this fence looks a little bit different than a home run that sails over this fence. And he hit two home runs last week uh, over the Green Monster. And that was my number one. That's my favorite kind of home run is that right-handed, just crushing a ball into the night. And like, where does it go? I don't know. It's just gone. It's just, you know, forget it. That baseball's dead. And I love the way an absolutely crushed right-handed home run looks in Fenway Park. And he had a couple just beauties. And I love, I just love the aesthetics of it. You know, I feel like he's just hitting them so far. It's it's incredible. Like, to me, Boston isn't that, but it's because I looked at it through a different scope. Like, because I'm like, I want to see where it actually lands. Like, I want to be able to judge that homer versus that homer. And when they just, like, Boston's field is so small that when they go, like, flying out of the stadium over and over again, you're like, well, I don't know how far that went compared to so-and-so home run I saw back in the day, right? So then the legend disappears. When Vlad's hitting these homers, I want to see how far they go so I can compare them to all the other homers because that becomes, it becomes like part of the story. So like, that's why I'm like, I love Boston and I love the green monster. I love the, the history there, but I don't like seeing the homers that are crushed there because, you know, I want to see them like how far up does it go in New York or Arizona? Like, did you get to the third row in the Mets or even Milwaukee? I once saw, oh man, I can't remember the name of this. I saw a left-handed hitter hit one up into like this little deck that I didn't even know was like possible to get to. It's like a fourth or fifth deck. Like it was the farthest tournament I've ever seen. So that's the only reason that I'm a little bit sad when he blasts one and you don't get to see how far did it really go. 
See, I guess the the compromise would be uh, Houston because you have like you can generally see where the home runs land there, but then you get that extra special like Tatis had one earlier this year where it just it just disappears. But for the most part, you kind of see where it lands. I know Pujols had the famous one off of Brad Lidge. You know, I just love like the backdrop of a high high target, but when the ball clears that high target and goes extra far, I don't know. There's something that's like a bonus home run to me. <laughs> the bonus, yeah. I just like I said, I like. I like seeing, and even like Houston, it is really fun to watch that, like because like it's going on to the train tracks, which is cool. But you still like miss out on some of those extra gnarly home runs where you're like, where the hell did it go? It, like, cause like they could hit the glass at the back of the stadium, which sometimes they do. They could bounce on the track, but you want to be able to see like where did it actually go? That kind of leads into one of my favorite all-time in-person home runs, which was the 2017 World Series. I was in center field in the auxiliary press box when Carlos Correa, this is game, what was it, five, just the bonkers back and forth, Astros and Dodgers, and Carlos Correa hit a ball, and where it landed was where the pyrotechnics shot off. So it looked like the ball caused the explosion. And I think that's like the best of both worlds. You just, it was so perfectly timed and I think it was accidental. And just, he hits the home run, it lands and boom, like a cannon went off. That was a great one. I mean, that's exciting. True story though, is there's, there's legends of McGuire like hitting the lights in Houston. And uh, <laughs> we like, we brought out like a aluminum bat to play around with on like a off day hitting BP. And with aluminum bats, we could get them to the lights. But the fact that Mark McGuire was putting them to the lights, was, that was always the legend. Now, tell me a little bit about that. So aluminum bats, you would you'd mess around with aluminum bats in batting practice? I did it one time in Philly and one time in Houston. And then I was like, this is dangerous because the balls <laughs> were going. And then also, it made your, it, it like messed with my mind a little bit because uh, then I got my wooden bat out and I would hit it really hard and, and really far. And it would just seem not that far because you're like leaving both stadiums and hitting the lights with the aluminum. And then just, just like, it feels really dull. And I didn't like the sense that it made me sad with my wooden bat. As a kid, I watched uh, This Week in Baseball, uh, that show with Mel Allen, and they had an April Fool's joke where they sat with pitchers and they asked them for an interview and they said, okay, so I'm just breaking the news to you. They're going to start using aluminum bats in the major leagues. Can we get your reaction on camera? And, you know, about half the pitchers didn't pick up that it was an April Fool's joke. And they weren't happy. You know, even in the 80s, they were just like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm going to take a screen out there. They were so livid and mad. I still can't believe they use them or they use them for so long in college baseball. They still use wood, uh, aluminum in college baseball, right? Aren't they like composite something? Yeah, I think they definitely like have deadened them. So it's like it's it's actually like almost harder to hit with those bats than it is with wooden bats. But I don't know. Like it's it's always changing. So who knows exactly? But I'm pretty sure they they uh, they weaken them a ton. All right. Well, let's move on to one of the pitchers, someone who's caught my eye just because it feels like it's taken him a long time to get here. This is Zach Wheeler, and he's someone of special fascination to me because the Giants traded him for Carlos Beltran in 2011. And it felt like the Mets were, you know, they would get a year and then he'd get hurt and then he'd come back and he, his command was off. And, and then, you know, right as he was coming into his own, he leaves in free agency and then he goes to the Phillies. And then there's a pandemic and he can't really see, you know, him coming into his own that much. He, he had 11 starts last year. He's a monster now. He's 31 years old. He is leading the the league at innings pitched. He has uh, the lowest FIP in baseball. He's got a 2.29 ERA as of this recording. 
He is a nasty, nasty pitcher coming into his own. And I feel like the Phillies sort of like not gambled because he was already a really good pitcher, but paid for this kind of pitcher. They didn't pay for someone who would put up an ERA close to four. They paid for this. And I think that their faith was rewarded. Yeah, I mean, this is an extraordinary season. He's an extraordinary talent. When he's healthy and as he's like hitting his prime, I mean, he's just got overpowering stuff. And the thing that's super cool about Wheeler is, you know, he came up young and he was, you know, you, you would expect like the 95 and that's kind of what you heard uh, when he was like the prospect. But he just continued to elevate his his velocity. And, and like that's kind of rare, especially in like professional baseball, to jump higher in, in, in velocity because you're throwing so much. And like Zach Wheeler's been like a – you know, he's in the rotation every year, just eating up innings. So to be pitching that many innings and to be going up in velocity uh, says a lot about your talent and your work ethic and your discipline. You know, once he got command of everything, that, this is what you're seeing. I'm not sure what his velo is now, but I know that he was touching 98 and just like overpowering stuff. You know, a fastball slider, he could just beat you with that because it was so explosive. But if he added any other pitches, I haven't gotten to see him pitch this year, though. Is he what's he what's his what's he featuring? He is kind of, you know, the the fastball, he's got the slider. He's the pitcher, kind of like you're saying, you know, when he came up, he he had the raw, raw stuff. And the more innings you pitch, you know, you get smarter as a starting pitcher, but you also, it's wear and tear and you maybe you, you, you lose a little tick off your fastball, but he hasn't lost a tick. It's, it's mainly, let's see, he's got a fastball that's up to 97 average velocity, which is the highest of his career. That's average velocity. That's insane. So he's probably pumping 99s on the regular. Yeah, he's throwing the fastball. It looks like 62% of the time. Slider, 25. He'll mix in a curve and a changeup, but it's mostly just that hot fastball with good command and uh, the slider to finish you off. And that's enough when you're when your average fastball is 97. So, and I'm sure he's got he's got where he's digging back in the tank when he needs it. You know, when they get to that veteran status and they understand the rhythms of the game, they dig deep when they need it and they you know cruise when they when they need to cruise. So uh, that's a really really you know exciting season for Zach Wheeler. And, and like you said, what the Phillies paid for. But I think the year that he had with the Mets, like they had that. You know, Wheeler was was you know arguably behind Degrom, who is another one in that division that's having one of the most spectacular seasons of all time. But they had Degrom, Wheeler, Syndergaard, and, and like you know, he was kind of the number the, the number two, like the best as far as like numbers in, that, in his final season with the Mets. So this is kind of what you expected for sure from him. You know, I mentioned that Wheeler uh, led the league in FIP, which is sort of like ERA, but that's because I forgot to to turn off the innings qualifier because DeGrom, let's start talking about him again, because just because he doesn't qualify for the ERA title yet, uh, he's missed a couple starts. His season, as of right now, 0.56 ERA. If he keeps that up, I mean, I always used to just stare at like the Bob Gibson in the baseball encyclopedia where he had the 1.12 ERA. It's an ERA from 1968 that I can remember because it was so freaky. And if to come, you know, keeps it up, 0.56, if he doubles that, he's in Bob Gibson territory. He's just having a goofy, goofy year. I wouldn't say goofy. I mean, I would say dominant, like that, yeah. the, the degrominant. I know it's like been said too much, but it literally is just dominant. And I was reading this article and it was talk, talking about like, you know, how, how good he's done and like, what, what do you, what is a hitter do you do to approach someone that's this good? And apparently the best approach against DeGrom is to not swing. When that's like what the articles are writing is like your best approach against him is to not swing because the whiff percentage, the hit percentage is so low. Um, and and by the way, your best approach is to not swing and he has a 4% walk rate. So <laughs> good luck. 
So just go up there like Santiago Casilla and just, you know, stand five feet off the plate and just uh, hold the bat up and take your takes. I would do more like movement and wiggling, try to uh, get in his head a little bit, you know, like uh, maybe even get close to the plate and hope that one can hit you, you know, if you're willing to take 102 off the ribs uh, for the team, you know, but uh, I mean, I think the article beyond just like your best approaches to not swing was saying that once you get to two strikes, a lot of times he's throwing stuff. It's like the lowest percentage in the zone with two strikes, but he's people are like batters are swinging at it at a high rate. It's 60.5% of the time it's out of the zone and hitters are flailing at it. Wait, wait. Let me read this exactly. Hitters are filling against pitches that aren't even strikes anyway. 65% of the time, DeGrom is throwing the hitter a ball. Yeah, that's with two strikes. So, and hitters are swinging at it a lot. So he's obviously throwing that strike-to-ball slider, and you have to respect the fastball. So that's what makes it so tough. So I think your best bet with DeGrom and the reason not to swing is to work his pitch count up as high as you can uh, and try to get him out of there so you can get to their pin. But once you get to the Mets' pin, guess what? That's nasty too. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We were laughing about Wheeler's average fastball velocity with with DeGrom. Uh, Average fastball velocity, 99.2. So, I mean, that is... uh, what do you, that's that's closer and it's not just like closer stuff that's like elite closer stuff that's the closer you talk about 20 years later to be able to pump an average fastball of 99 uh i for a starting pitcher it, come on that that shouldn't that should be uh outlawed honestly this is the crazy thing is that like miles prower doesn't give you the whole story because i don't know how to explain it but like it just comes out of different pitchers' hands differently. And maybe it's like some of them are getting closer to you. And, like, think of how tall DeGrom is and his extension. Where is he releasing that 99, that 100, 101, 102? When he first came up, once again, you know, he was like 95, 97, you know, 94 a lot of the times. And it was like this explosive 94 to 97. So his ball, like, rises as far as, like, the way you see it mentally – so it appears to be in one place, but it's above that by a lot. So it's already a mind. It's a really tricky, deceptive pitch because it just explodes up. And so the fact that he's increased his velocity this high and then he's really commanding that slider so that you have to respect the fastball away. And he's just it's just like, oh, guess what? This is a slider away uh, and it's a ball and you're not going to hit it. So uh, it's truly going to be exciting to follow the rest of his season. Uh, we definitely hope he stays healthy and we get to watch what he's doing because like you said, it's Bob Gibson dominance, it's DeGrominance, and it is something special where if you got a chance to go watch this guy pitch right now, you need to go watch him because it's 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 as good as it's ever been. Now, this is a good point. I'm glad that you brought that up about, you know, velocity not always being the full story because take a guy like Richard Rodriguez, the closer for the Pirates. He throws a fastball that's like 92, 93. He throws it about 90% of the time. He is a fastball forward pitcher, and it's not the hottest velocity. But even when you have an idea that it's coming, hitters just aren't picking it up out of his hands. So you have that aspect to a fastball. That can make a great fastball, even without velocity. Then you have guys who can maybe pump it up into triple digits, but hitters can see it out of their hands. And, you know, maybe they're they're able to get more contact on it than you would think based on the radar gun. What DeGrom does is he takes that funky, the fastball that would work in the low 90s, And he pairs it with the high velocity. And now you have a fastball that would work at a much lower velocity. Oh, but now it's triple digits too. So it's like he's he's exponentially better. There's all sorts of different things that make fastballs seem and appear in different ways. And like you said, like sometimes 
you know, certain pitchers like open up. A lot of times like sinker pitchers will do that and they'll just like show it to you for a long time. So you'll get like a good view of it, even though it's really hard. You have a lot of time seeing it and and the ones that can really hide it. And and so like like the ball releases like from their body or like have different angles. This is where like a lot of people ask me some of the nastiest pitchers I ever faced. And the two that I bring up is is Arietta had a he had a, a, a window in like two years where it was like a he had kind of a one point seven five or a point seven five, like something super low. And that was when they won the World Series and they were going super deep. But he would step across his body and then like he had a cutter and he had a turbo sinker from stepping across his body so it was like kind of coming from behind your neck and it was either going to keep coming at your face or be like this huge <laughs> slider but it, the ball even his fastball it, it like because he stepped across his body imagine it coming the ball started going like kind of at an angle towards the outside corner but then it would like take like a like a right turn so it, it was kind of it, it was just like three it felt like it had three different directions so like it was super circus pitch, and then also it could be the cutter that just takes keeps going that same direction. So it was a really tough window to face him. And then also when when Linscombe was throwing 101, and he was doing the same thing, like the you know the wraparound thing that he did, and it was just like coming from this like crazy angle. And he's the only right-handed pitcher that threw me a left-handed curveball. <laughs> Somehow his split finger broke because he was throwing so hard with so much torque. His, his splitty or his changeup, I don't know what you want to call it, it broke as sharp as a left-handed curveball, like slider. So imagine a lefty like spinning a ball as hard as they can and it just diving down and into you. He threw a changeup that had that same bite, and that's how explosive Linscombe was. So those were the two. But anyway, uh, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but I was just thinking, and, and this is kind of where DeGrom is right now, is he's just he's hiding the ball, it's exploding, it's, it's rising, and... You're going to have to make a tremendous guess to hit him correctly right now. Was there a pitcher who like offered close to or maybe triple digit velocity that you just saw really well for whatever reason? You couldn't explain it. Maybe no one else saw it as well, but you just happen to see it well? In the younger years, like Eovaldi, you could kind of see pretty good for how hard he was throwing, you know, and I, and I think... Uh, you know, Belt always hit him pretty well, but he had some he had some good starts against us for sure. We we seemed to hit him better at his place. I'm trying to think of some other people throwing a hundred that you just kind of saw okay, but that that was the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, no, you bringing up Litzicum, it, it reminds me of just how different baseball is now, and I don't just mean how the sport is played but how accessible every granular scrap of video is now. I can watch every pitch. I can pull up every pitch uh, thrown in the 2021 season and analyze it. If I want to go back and watch Tim Litzikum, uh when he was you know, throwing upper 90s, maybe 100 every so often, it's hard to find that video. Like you really have to search. You'll get selected starts or selected highlights, but it's not the same. Like I just, I want to just watch hours of Tim Lincecum video. And it's just, that's not how baseball was back in 2007, 8, 9. It's just, it wasn't that accessible. Yeah, it's definitely sad. And like, and that's what I was talking about when we were kids. Like, there was no YouTube, there was no MLB Network. Uh, a lot of these like great opportunities to like learn from the best. So like, baseball knowledge was like kind of like secretive back then. Like, everyone was keeping secrets because you could. But now, you know, we're in the information age where you know everyone's promoting their you know whatever their social media and all of that, which is understood, and everyone's sharing knowledge. And so all the secrets and all the information's out there. If you want to do the work, you can you can hear from the best hitters everywhere. You can find everything. But it is a little sad because I would love to go back and watch some of Lincecum's like crazy starts when when he first came up, and you know even the 2010 run. I remember 
playing against the 2010 Giants and just being like, man, it was a beast to come into San Francisco. And like no one, like they weren't expected to be this great team. But like you come in and it was Kane pumping like, you know, 95, 96. And, and that was before like that was even common. Like that was very rare. So you got Linscombe throwing 101. Then you got Sanchez throwing 97. And then you got Affelt throwing 97 out of the pen. And then you run into Casilla throwing 97 out of the pen. You run into Wilson throwing 99 as the closer. It was just like you were like buckle up as a hitter when you come to San Francisco. And oh, by the way, the wind's flying in. And then, and then all of a sudden they bring up some teenager named Madison Bumgarner. Like, oh, what, how's this going to work out? And they were nasty back then. Bumgarner, I didn't face back then, or I didn't see him. But I just remember I got to do like an interview, and like when the Phillies, the Phillies were the hot team right then, and and they were playing the Giants, and I actually picked the Giants to win that series, and they couldn't believe it. And I was like, this pitching that the Giants have, you're like you don't, might not know about it now, but uh, step in the box against them. It's it, 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 it's you better pack a lunch. All right, well, stepping in the box, that's a good segue because we're going to talk about something that you have thoughts on, and I'm, I'm eager to hear them. Walk-up music. Uh, we can talk closer entrance music. We can talk walk-up music for a hitter. So when you were hitting, tell us about your walk-up songs. Well, the walk-up song, it's not just like, hey, what were your walk-up songs? The walk-up song was like such a fun, it's a fun vibe. It's a fun thing to play with. And, you know, everyone does it differently. And and I definitely respect, like, there's certain players that just have one song for their whole career and never change it. And I think one of my favorite stories of all time was actually was listening to the video guy with the Phillies talk about Chase Utley and his walk-up song, Led Zeppelin Cashmere, okay? And he was saying, this guy was like a big rock fan. He's like, it's super cool, like, Utley comes out to this song because, you know, this song is like the masterpiece of Led Zeppelin, one of the master rock bands, and Chase Utley is Philly's masterpiece. He just like thought it was like, it was like, he's like, it's perfect. It's exactly how it should be. And just like, I was kind of like, wow, that's super cool. You know? And you know, you think of like Chipper Jones coming out to crazy train and think of Jim Tomei, at least I do coming out to the beautiful people by uh, Marilyn Manson. And I think Evan Longoria has come out to the same one, his whole career as well. So I definitely respect that Mariano Rivera walkout was a big deal. I like to play with my, my walk-up song. And like, I remember when we were bringing this up, like some of the people doing like really funny things. And I think Tulowitzki was one that always had some really funny walk-up songs that always made me laugh. And I did bring up the Joey Votto tight pants, got my tight white pants on. But I remember Tulo just, he was the first one to come out to like Miley Cyrus or something. And then he was also coming out to like R. Kelly, like I'm a flirt, like <laughs> just like, just like. Uh, feeling on your booty or something like that like I don't remember exactly but he always came out to some funny like kind of like uh, I don't know like songs that would you'd put on like in the bedroom or something and I always 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 got a kick out of that that leads into one of my favorite all-time walk-up songs which is Michael Morse with Take On Me you know it's just like it's it's a little out of place it's not ironic because it's a great song it's just not what you would anticipate for you know a slugger coming up to take his hacks Okay, so there's way more to take on me. And Michael Morse had an art to the walk-up song. So first off, I felt like Michael Morse was one of the best. Like, he was an incredible DJ. Like, he, like, loved 80s. Like, loved 80s. And just, like, you know, freaking Sunday morning 80s, Nija. Like, gotta have it. And, like, he would find, like, these weird... I don't know where he found them, but these weird, like, 80s and, like, EDM mixes and techno, like, synth 
80s and but he also had like really good like he was the one who got us our 2014 like crazy pump up song from some guy i've never heard of and like he had like this like crazy hard rap that he could like he just had a wide range of like he could do country he could do uh he could do latin music he could do everything but what he was most known for was his like finding these really great 80s and 80s remixes and things and so what he would talk about and he was always changing his his walk-up songs and um he had some super fun ones but his whole theory was he's like listen you know you do your first one it's like gonna get you pumped up your first at bat you're just like getting into the game you're feeling out the pitcher your second at bat you know the game's heating up and going on you know and whatever but your third at bat he would say he goes your third at bat is the core of the game this is the meat of the game this is when you need your big at bat and this is when you bring your a song and he's like the one song he never changed was his his third at bat was always take on me and if he ever got a big hit and it was usually you know that third at bat's usually in the seventh inning and that's when the game's you know figuring itself out so i always thought that that was super cool that he like talked about he was like orchestrating his at bat walk-up music and and timing it for the third at bat to be the climax of the day it is remarkable how much fun a walk-up song or entrance song can be for the fans. Because I remember, like, okay, so back in the day, for whatever reason, I just loved that Brent Main had Shakedown Street as a walk-up song. It's a, a like a disco Grateful Dead song. It's like, how did he pick that? You know, so I, I, I tether certain players, random players, you know, esoteric players with these random songs. Tom Lampkin had Alice in Chains Rooster. But when you would get the right fit of song and player, where it would be like Barry Bonds walking up, to the next episode and like that music and the the way it got the crowd going because this is peak Bonds this is Bonds at his MVP best and you would hear that music and the crowd would go bananas it's hard to explain it's just like it's such a special experience for the fans too it's a super fun time when you have like a moment like that where like the fans can even like you know and and, and even we would you know you hear this song and someone's having that great season and you're like feeling that energy of the song that fills the stadium it really is special when you have like that Barry Bonds and when Buster was coming out to some country song and and you know Pablo was always having his like really fun uh, I remember he was coming out to the what was the this was in 2012 where everyone was doing that crazy the Harlem sh- shake Remember oh, the yeah, Harlem yeah. Shake? <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. And like everyone was doing these like wild videos. And the, so he was coming out to that during 2012. I remember that was like a big thing. And they would like start pumping your music when you got a hit. Like so you would have it as a walk up. Then if you did like something sweet, they would like pump it again. And I just remember the whole like stadium going nuts when Pablo was hitting these homers and they were pumping the Harlem Shake. And it was like kind of the hot song at the time. And like Gondom style, open Gondom style was a big hit in 2012. So you definitely relate like these songs to the time frame and the season and the run and it really is a lot of fun whenever you have that whole blend where the song matches the hitter matches the great season matches the excitement in the stands all right so let's pretend that a couple of dominoes fell differently in your career you are now you are not hunter pence outfielder you are hunter pence closer okay and you're coming in for a save what is your entrance music hunter pence closers entrance music by the way, uh, and I'm, I'm already missing one of my favorites was Sergio Romo's when he was with the oh, Giants. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't know a single word that was being said, but I always, it was always at an electric party whenever Romo came out to, uh, I, I wish I knew the name of it, but it was some just amazing Marachi band like song. El Machon. El Machon. Something about light my fuse is what Romo would say is that, that that's talking about. So uh, there's been so many parties and so many great intros, but 
if you're a closer, you got to have something that lights the crowd up. Like, you know, I, I really enjoyed like the excitement that you got whenever Romo come out or, you know, night train for Javi Lopez. That was a good one. Cause he was just Jay smooth, but I think you got to have something that pumps as a closer and you have to have something, you know, I always liked when they put the, like the lighting system gets involved in it. You know, I, I think of like, you know, Brad Lidge coming out and like in Houston, whenever he came out, they would like shut the lights off. And then boom, 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 and like fire everywhere and like something, just like some crazy rock song. I don't remember what it was, but if, if you're a closer, it's got to be like the Mariano Rivera. It's got to be like something that like gets you super amped because this is a big moment and like closers are coming in wild, crazy and, and ready to like, this is it. This is the whole, this is the story of the game right here. Once the closer comes in, that's, that's where you get your win. And uh, so for me, it's going to be something super heavy rock, something like lightning bolts. I want fire. I want the lights coming on and off. Uh, uh, you know, just be wary. If I'm a closer, I'm, you know, I, I, I want psycho. Yeah, you know, I always said I had two answers. And one was there's a, a song called Thumb by a band called Caius. And the reason I like that is because it's super heavy, but it builds, it builds. It comes in and it's like, it's heavy at the start, but it just keeps getting heavier. So that's one stock answer. But I also thought maybe I'd come out to like, spoonful of sugar mary poppins and then throw my first three warm-up pitches to the backstop just to get in the head of the opposing hitter i don't know that that was the other option listen you're in the big leagues like throwing the being a closer and throwing it to the backstop doesn't get in the head because guess what we have video of everyone we know what you throw (laughs) we know what you're doing and if you're just doing that we have a strategy so you're not getting in the head of these guys with that or mary poppins i also think of like valverde like this guy like took a ball off the face and kept pitching and like you know just like you know just coming out to just savagery and i just i just feel like that's the way but there are some like super calm there's some super calm because a closer is either super intense or hyper calm like you think of rivera and and like and 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 calm is usually good i think we brought up another good one brian wilson jump around was pretty good gets the fans going just anything that gets the fans going gets them excited and and like even though mariano rivera came in very ice cold and icy veins and like super focused his song was pretty pumpy yeah, yeah, Enter Sandman, that's one of the classics, like Hell's Bells with Trevor Hoffman. That's another that's another classic. That's it. It's slow and it, and they they did turn the lights off I think for him and like turn them on and it's just like boom. Like yeah. get ready, get ready, that's get ominous. ready. Boom. Yeah, it gets you it gets you so fired up. And that has like that same sort of slow burn up. You know, it's not like ACDC's just coming in, just firing, and they're they're going at 180 uh, beats per minute. It's just kind of you know you got the, the the little ringing guitar, and then it gets heavier, and then it gets heavier. So that's probably you know Enter Sandman is a classic, but for me, I think the best of all time is Hell's Bells. There's no beating Hell's Bells as far as like great insane intro. Um, there was a couple like Heath Bell had a decent one for a little bit. That always got me pissed off because it was just like talking about <laughs> I forget what it was. It, it, they had something like the three hundred like clips from movies and stuff, and it was just like uh, like something like I'll beat your ass, like you know something like that. And I was just like I always got super fired up to face him. He was nasty for a little bit too. It was "Blow Me Away" by Breaking Benjamin. I did not know that song, but uh, that is that is funny. Just like that that you're paying attention to the lyrics and you're kind of like going, oh, "Okay, hot shot, let's go." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a message. It sends a message. One of my all-time favorites, and then we'll we'll move on, is because of the timing of it, was Rob Ned's Smoke on the Water. Yeah. And, you know, so 
it's just, it's a really super heavy riff. One of the classic uh, riffs of all time. They started playing it when the Giants moved into what's now Oracle Park. And so if you grew up a Giants fan and you had your whole experience was Candlestick, Candlestick has a special place in my heart. But when you were there in the new ballpark and you recognized this ballpark is cool. And then your closers coming in with a song that's heavy, but it also references where you're at and you're looking around and going, that's right. We're on the water. This is different. Like it was a perfect marriage of closer stuff, riff and experience. Yeah, that, like sometimes you just get the masterpiece, you know, like the Chase Hutley and, and Philly and, you know, what, what Chipper Jones came out to. And Rob Nance was definitely classic. A lot of like, you know, the, the, the 90s, 2000s, like they got like some of that like great metal era with like Metallica and all these people. And they just like, you know, and like I think Jim told me the beautiful people. It's just like you feel that it like ramps you up into like this Hall of Fame hitter. So uh, I have to also mention I can't talk walk up songs without mentioning the last game of the year with Brandon Crawford as shortstop. He's been doing this thing where he like writes everyone's walk-up song and he has a, a theme and a purpose behind it. And that's super fun too. So as a Giants fan, I know we've brought up a lot of theirs because we all have kind of connections there. But the last game of the season is super fun to go watch because Brandon puts a lot of thought into it and gives everybody a walk-up song. He's the clubhouse DJ, right? I mean, that's that's kind of his role. Yeah, he's the clubhouse DJ for for a couple, quite a few years. That's a lot of pressure, you know. You gotta you got a lot of uh, personalities to to please, and it seems like he kind of does a good job at it. It's impossible to please everyone. He does a pretty good job of it, and you know, it's nice to have that person that you can count on and you can make requests and do those things. So he's a good DJ. It's a tough job, but he's also that last series is super cool to watch. By the way, sneaky amazing season as well. Fifteen homers, uh, first half, still pumping, playing great defense. So I just wanted. A little shout out for Brandon Crawford and also make sure uh, Giants fans you get to that that series where he does the walk-ups ah there's so many so many good ones hitting me um oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, man into the ether you know before we go we were sent an article uh from the New York Times and we have to cover it because we're the baseball barista and that's a nod to your passion for coffee I am usually super caffeinated by the time I get on here too so we are coffee guys and uh, the New York Times had an article about how drinking more coffee has health benefits. And so this runs contrary to how I grew up. When I grew up, coffee was going to stunt your growth. It was going to, you know, uh, cause heart problems. But in this one, I'll quote, in a study of more than 200,000 participants followed for up to 30 years, those who drank three to five cups of coffee a day with or without caffeine were 15% less likely to die early from all causes than were people who shunned coffee. I'm drinking a health thing. This is basically a, a smoothie. If you were to tell me that I, drinking coffee every day makes me die a little bit quicker, I would say I'm still drinking coffee because <laughs> it, the time of my life is so much more enjoyable and so much more you know fantastic. But it definitely it has it has stimulants and it has great things that like kind of get you moving and get you going. And it's a, it's it's almost like a I get a worried to say the word spiritual, but it's almost like a spiritual like my morning and my time with the coffee kind of like preps my day. And now that you're telling me I'm going to get coffee, I'm going to enjoy my day more and I'm going to live longer. <laughs> I mean, all the more reason to get get involved with the coffee industry with get out there, check out your local coffee shops, check out the local roasteries, help these farmers, help these different countries, enjoy the experience because coffee is such a journey 
There's so many good coffees out there. Uh, there's so many like great farmers. There's so much to learn. It's like it's just as deep as coffee or as wine, if not more deep. So it's a really fun experience for me. Uh, it's a really fun journey, and it makes my days better. Now you're telling me it's making me healthier. I have a weird relationship with coffee in that every so often I will start. Uh, I will drink too much of it. I will. I will ramp it up, and then all of a sudden I'm drinking you know six, seven cups a day, and it causes uh, heart palpitations. Not heart problems. Just you know, I need to hydrate more, and then I go. You know what? I'm going to take a break from coffee coffee and then I go to tea and then I'll have like I'll go maybe six months a year where I'm drinking tea and I'm like oh I love tea tea's so great and then for whatever reason I'll take a sip of coffee and go oh yeah that's right this is my true love I was sort of just pretending tea's cool but like coffee is is coffee do you notice a difference in that six months where you're just drinking tea? Do you notice any difference? Like, cause to me, you know, there's all these science studies and these things will pop out and you know, one day coffee is great for you. The next day coffee is dangerous for you. And like, you know, so like I, I don't buy into every study I get all the way. I pay attention to my experience. So I'd like to hear your experience with tea versus when you're drinking coffee. And, and by the way, three to five cups, not six to 20 cups of coffee, right? Like balance is key. That's the thing. You know, I was, uh, gosh, I was like 30 and I went to my doctor and I said, doc, I'm having uh, heart palpitations. And to me, I don't know anything about that. You know, I'm an idiot. And so I don't know what that means. And he he was very unconcerned. He goes, you drink coffee? And I said, I, I do. And he goes, cut it out or drink less. And I said, really? It's that simple. He's like, yeah, don't worry about them. They're not serious, but drink less coffee. So I would do it. And it would feel like you get used to it, like the lower caffeine, your body adjusts and it's fine. It's just the taste. Like I just, I love, like you're saying, exploring different different coffees. I'm more of a, a medium roast guy, but sometimes, you know, I'll dabble in the dark roast. I'll I'll, uh, I'll do some light roast, you know, but it, it, I just love the taste. I love the taste. I, I drink it black. Overall, it's just, it's it's more of an experience than it is like, I'm just trying to get caffeine in me. It's just, I just love the vibe of it. Yeah, it's it's an experience. And it's fun to go check out the different shops. They all have, you know, a different vibe and 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 they're experiencing and of themselves. Coffee is an experience. It's a journey. It's a process. Coffee and baseball. That's what we do, Grant. I keep meaning to get uh, my hands on uh, Rob Nyer's spreadsheet notebooks of like listing the coffee shops because I, I just know you'd get a kick out of it. So I got to make a note to do that. All right. This is uh, episode. What was this? This is episode 11 of the Baseball Barista. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, next time we show up, we'll probably talk about baseball because that's what we do around here. So uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. I love coffee. <laughs>